Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, I'm joined by my friend King Bolingbroke to discuss Act 1 of Shakespeare's greatest play, King Lear. Thankfully, we're going to have a, a total of five discussions, one on each act. Um, it seems to be the case that this might be Shakespeare's greatest play, and so one discussion is um, not the right amount to have about such a great work. But before we jump into talking about the play, uh, Bolingbroke, could you please exhort any listeners um, to read Shakespeare? Why should people read Shakespeare? Um, anyone who follows me on Twitter sees at least once a week or so that I just remind everyone you need to stop what you're doing and read some Shakespeare. <laughs> and the reason is, if you are an English speaker, if you're not familiar with Shakespeare, like a comfortable with Shakespeare and have read a lot of his plays many times, then you're not really a educated speaker of the language because Shakespeare invented English as we know it uh, between Shakespeare and the King James Bible. If you're reading those two things, you're learning the language. If you're not, then you're uh, sort of fumbling through it and not accomplishing what you should be. Beyond that, Shakespeare is a political philosopher in his own right. He is a moral mm -hmm. educator he is a teacher of truth and goodness and beauty, and his plays are also thrilling and great to read. And so wherever you're at, for whatever reason you might consider doing it, you need to pick up Shakespeare, you need to be reading it. And so if you're listening to this and you haven't read King Lear yet, I exhort you, pause the podcast, pick up King Lear, read Act 1, it'll take you a little while. It's a, it's a, it's a longer play, it'll, it'll take you maybe an hour to read Act 1 if you're reading it carefully. And after you've read it, turn it back on and then you can you can listen on and uh, and see what commentary we can provide. But everybody listening, you should be reading Shakespeare. Yes, please read Act One right now uh, or, you know, soon. And, and our commentary, I think, will focus mostly just on Act One. So if you are reading King Lear for the first time, you know, there won't be really spoilers. Generally speaking, you know, you'll just hear about Act One. So go read Act One. Um, OK, good. So I'll just offer a brief summary of act one and then obviously Bolingbroke, if there's details that get missed, please interrupt me. Um, so in act one, scene one, the titular character King Lear wishes to step down from being King. And so he divides his kingdom into three portions for each one of his daughters and their husbands. They're asked to publicly say how much that they love him. Two daughters, Goneril and Regan, flatter Lear, and the youngest and dearer daughter, dearest daughter, says that she loves Lear no more and no less than a daughter ought to love her father. For this public disgrace, he disinherits or undowers her and banishes her. She marries the king of France, who is one of her suitors. Lear's most loyal attendant, Kent, is also banished after pushing against Lear's decision. In scene two, we see Edmund, the bastard son of Gloucester, another man loyal to Lear, scheme to disinherit his legitimate brother, Edgar. He tricks their father into believing that the legitimate brother, Edgar, seeks to take his father's life. In Act 1, Scene 3, Lear, having stepped down from the throne, but while still retaining the title of king and keeping 100 knights, is staying with his eldest daughter, Goneril. She is discourteous and has her attendants provide Lear with poor service to provoke him and drive him out. In scene four, 
Kent dons a disguise and returns to Lear to serve him in secret. The thoughtful fool of Lear is introduced, who, through many merry comments and songs, attempts to help Lear grasp how foolish he has been. Goneril's plan to drive Lear out is successful. And finally, briefly, in scene five, Lear sends Kent ahead with a letter to his other daughter, Regan, to help prepare his stay with her, uh, who he takes now to be his last remaining daughter, having decided Goneril no longer counts as a daughter. There's like so much to summarize. I feel like it was harder to write a summary of this than most other things because there's so much going on. Is there anything that you would add to the summary of the um, act one? I think that that hits the main points that as you're speaking, of course, there's details that I'm like, and then also this, but I think that most of that are things that will, will hit as we go. So I think that you, I, as you say, it's difficult, but I think you hit it well enough. Yeah. Okay, good. So we both, when we were sending each other notes about this, we both had some observations that seemed to indicate that either at least in speech, to some extent, Lear is treated as a God, maybe by, you know, two of his daughters or that he regards himself as a kind of God, or there are different speeches that he and other characters make that sort of at least metaphorically place Lear in the position of a God. And I'm curious if you, yeah, could say something about that. Yeah. I think that, well, there's a couple, there's a couple of things that make me think this in particular. He, there's a phrase that he uses twice and it's nothing comes from nothing or variations on that. One time he says it to Cordelia. It's very early in the play. Uh, She's asked, what speech are you going to make? And she says, nothing. And he says, nothing. And she says, nothing. And he says, nothing will come from nothing. And expects her to say something else. And then later the fool uh, says something about nothing. And then he responds in a similar way that nothing, nothing comes from nothing. Mm-hmm. And this point, I think, is the basis of his entire understanding of his relationship to his daughters. Mm-hmm. The way that he treats his daughters and the things that he expects from them is what one might expect a prime cause or first mover, uh, the obligation one would have to a being or thing like that. And so Lear is the creator He is the first thing that brought about his daughters. And so when he says nothing comes from nothing, well, the implication of that is you didn't come from nothing. And so you need to treat me as the thing that you came from. You Mm -hmm. did not come out from nothing. Instead, you came out from me and now treat me as the thing that gave you life. Um, Now, one, one little side caveat, the fool picks up on this as well. And later in the play, when the fool is talking to Lear and he he's teasing him constantly. And as you say, trying to bring the gravity of the situation down on him because he's not grasping how bad things really are. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he says, he's, he says, I'm going to shut up because Goneril's staring at me and she's telling me I should shut up with her eyes. But what he, the one of the last things he says is that's a shelled peas cod to Lear saying that mm-hmm. Lear is an empty pea pod. Mm-hmm. which would be to say uh, now there's some irony in this. That would probably be the mother. If we're just thinking technically, what would the peas come out of? Right. But he's a shelled peas cod. The children are squeezed out of him. And what is he worth? Nothing. And so, yes, nothing comes from nothing, 
but also after the peas have left the pod, the pod is nothing. And so um, it doesn't make you a god just because you have kids. That's that's the first thing. But uh, the what this makes Lear think is that his children have this obligation to him that is beyond anything else, that it won't be split, that he is the sovereign of their lives and the sovereign of their loves. And mm-hmm. this is why he expects them to give these verbose rhetorically treacly ridiculous speeches that he wants to hear Mm -hmm. and so he says tell me how much you love me and his expectation is not to be reasoned with he doesn't want to have a discussion or a dialogue about the nature of love he wants them to say oh wise and overweening ruler of all life and truth the creator of my being i love you above all else because you are the creator of my being and if cordelia had said something like this he would have tipped his cap and given her a third of the kingdom but this is his expectation because well that's that's just what um that's what a god expects going further in this he admits himself that cordelia is his favorite daughter he says that she is the, the highest in his love in the play but he doesn't expect his daughters to have a favorite besides himself. He expects right. himself to be the favorite of all three daughters, even though Cordelia is his favorite. And so they're <laughs> going to favor each other more than the other daughters, of course, because the other daughters know this. I mean, it's p- children know when their parents have a favorite. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a favorite thing to tease a parent about, and parents always get uncomfortable with it. Right. Uh, but Lear's daughters know this and he's expecting, despite the fact that he plays favorites for them not to play favorites because he is the prime mover. He is their God and nothing comes from nothing. And so they have to treat him like this kind of being. And when they don't, he exercises this plenary godlike authority in overreacting. Uh, his people's people's reading of the play generally says he overreacts and in an over-the-top way casts out Cordelia because of her reaction to him, which uh, is one of the first things. There's many, many things throughout the play, but it's the first thing in the play that suggests to him that perhaps he's not a god. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and so the way that Goneril and Regan reply to him seems to presuppose that they understand maybe that Lear thinks of himself in this way um, to sort of help confirm this kind of thing, which is to say like um, Goneril seems to regard him, or at least rather in her public speech under this circumstance, she more or less says to Lear, like you are the source of all of the good things in my life. And then Regan says something like, one should be an enemy to the joys or the goods that don't flow from Lear. So not only should you say the good things only come from you, but also the alleged goods that flow out of other sources should be spurned and seen as enemies or something like that. And it seems like you would only say that to some extent from, like if you were looking at a like an all-powerful or all-loving God or something along those lines. Um, so... Yeah, to see one's father in this light is to see him as a god. Um, but it does seem like there's also something... Well, maybe I'm actually going to come to this point in a second. Maybe I'll mention two other things um, along these lines. Is to say that Lear calls Cordelia proud um, for having rebelled against his will. And so pride, 
there might be others. There's, I'm sure there's more to say about it than this, but you could say that it's a sense of one's completeness or self-sufficiency in key respects. But ultimately, it's an attempt to flatter oneself or to say that one is better than one is. Um, in other words, to reject God is a prideful act to say that one does not need his mercy, mercy and grace. Um, so, yeah, to call Cordelia proud is to saying you've rebelled against the God. You think you don't need me? Well, find out what life is like without me in my absence. What will it be like for you? Um, it won't be good. And so, too, when he banishes Kent, you know, Kent like sort of nobly says that his life is just a pawn for Lear's life. He does not fear death. He just wants to do what's good for the person that he serves. And it seems like this is the kind of devotion that maybe ought to be reserved for a god. You know, maybe it's even that kind of devotion that could convince Lear that he is deserving of that kind of devotion since he's seen it. Um, so that would be a sort of like mainline thing that I feel confident about saying. Maybe I'll add one speculative suggestion, um, which is to say that, I don't know, if you want your daughter to just love you and only you, isn't there something kind of incestuous about that kind of thing? And Cordelia almost says as much when she sort of says about her sisters, like, don't they have husbands? Like, I love you and I love my husband. Or, you know, I will love my future husband since she's about to be married. But she sort of like says, like, we have like these multiple attachments and there's something kind of weird um, about saying, I only love my dad. You know, if you're a young woman, like, that seems kind of crazy. And I don't know, it seemed to me that there were a couple things maybe in the play that kind of point to something Oedipal or something that reminds me of Sophocles' Oedipus. So the incest, like, first of all, would be something like that. Um, and Lear, when he's banishing Kent, like, they have a kind of, you know, argument about Apollo. Um, he is cited there at the end of the scene. And it seems like the god who Oedipus sees himself as principally in opposition to is Apollo. Um, like when he is like uh, late in Sophocles' Oedipus, uh, it's said that Oedipus says this, it was Apollo, friends, Apollo, that brought this bitter, <clears throat> this bitter bitterness, my sorrows to completion. But the hand that struck me uh, was none but my own. Why should I see whose vision showed me nothing sweet to see? And so in that way, I don't know, there's, I don't want to go too far into Oedipus, but something Mrs. MCC <laughs> has suggested that there's like some way in which it's like, so Apollo brought these things upon me, but if Apollo has something to do with light, with individuation, that our perception is able to see things because of light or something like that, that Oedipus is kind of denying Apollo access to his senses or something like that. So there's a lot, a lot to say about that kind of thing. But at any rate, Apollo appears prominently in that play, and we could say that. And maybe it seems like, metaphorically speaking, to sleep with your mother and to kill your father, there's like a sort of sense in which that might be a sort of deep sense of spiritual tyranny, um, like a kind of desire to create yourself. I mean, this is really impossible, but it might be one of the most tyrannical desires if you're trying to overcome anything that limits your own will or your own desire. And um, we do um, get talk, yeah, in the play, well, obviously, like later in the play, um, talk about like, you know, eyes being plucked out. And in some cases, you know, eyes um, actually being plucked out. So so it seems like there's something Oedipal, and I'm not sure exactly how Oedipal Lear is or not, 
or how deep of a spiritual tyrant he is, if he's as deeply a spiritual tyrant as Oedipus or not, or if it's worth thinking through that connection too much. But it just seemed like there's a lot of Oedipal things that kind of showed up and I thought it was worth mentioning, I suppose. Yeah, I think, I think that that's right. Um, one, one funny thing, the connection with Apollo is interesting too, because Kent's response sort of reminds Lear uh, well, Kent cites the Ten Commandments, which is uh, Shakespeare was fond of using. Um, he would use anachronisms as a way to call up, to call up uh, difficult questions in a new context, so that the questions that he's calling up won't get him into political trouble. Um, let me explain what I mean first. Uh, King Lear is supposed to be before the Christian era. This is supposed to be pagan Britain. And so these people would not have access to the the Bible. They're not reading the Old Testament. And yet Kent uh, speaks about Apollo as if he is Jehovah. So this is in Act 1, Scene 1, lines 182. I'm reading in the um, Folger the Folger Shakespeare library it's line 182 Lear says now by Apollo and Kent repons now by Apollo king thou swearest thy gods in vain uh mm-hmm. telling him he's taking the name of his gods in vain which of course that upsets him more but it also is funny mm-hmm. um because this connection now is he, he uses the word god uh He's the, I mean, I believe Lear says that mentions the gods earlier, but this is the first person to talk to Lear about the gods and it incenses him. So he's saying, you don't understand the gods and the way that you're behaving toward the gods is wrong. Um, and the reaction this gets from Lear, if you go down to line, uh, so when he tells him he's proud uh, at line 191, he says, hear me recreant on thine allegiance, hear me that thou hast sought to make us break our vows, which we durst never yet, and with strained power to come betwixt our sentence and our power, which nor our nature nor our place can bear. Our potency made good, take thy reward. And then he tells him he has to leave. But what I'm interested in is the result of him making this critique of him, uh, of Kent making this critique of Lear, to be clear, Mm -hmm. is that Lear starts to speak of himself in godly terms again, right? Don't mm-hmm. come between my sentence and my power. Uh, there's this, uh, I believe it's like the Kantian understanding of God is that there is no chronological delay between God's will and the movement that follows it. So like mm-hmm. Kant says that God doesn't have a will because when God wills something, it happens immediately. And this is what Lear is saying. You're stopping me so that my will, the sentence and my power, the, the execution there's a chronological delay between it. And what you're doing is wrong because one, my nature that I'm godlike and my place as a king can't bear this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes on our potency may good, take that reward. And he doesn't allow him to delay it anymore chronologically. Um, but yeah, I, I agree that. And I think that we'll, when we get to talking about the Edmund speech, like we discussed, I think that the Apollo point, I hadn't thought of this, but the, that Apollo is evoked might help with our understanding of Edmund's kind of strange mm-hmm. contradiction about, about nature. Um, yeah. And, and to add something to what you said about uh, Lear as a kind of God and this sort of Conti notion or something like that, that it's just sort of God wants it to happen and it happens. And there's no chronological distance between 
the wish and it coming to be. Is it like in uh, Act 1, Scene 4, like Lear keeps calling for his fool um, and the fool doesn't come. And so he says the world is asleep. So somehow it's like the world is less responsive to his speech. So if like, you know, the word is supposed to be made flesh or something like that, like the, nothing has happened. The word has been said and nothing has happened. Nothing has come to be. So it's like, well, I don't know. The things must be asleep or something like that. <laughs> um, but it seems like that's maybe a continuation of that kind of thing of just thinking like, why is there this interruption between my will and the world moving? And it's not moving in accordance with my will anymore. And um, one other point with what you mentioned with Regan and Goneril, um, their reaction, the reason they give the speeches they do is because they understand Lear. Now, mm-hmm. I think that Cordelia seems to think she understands Lear more perfectly that like, oh, I know the real King Lear. I know my father really. And so I know what he really wants. What he really wants is for me to be honest. But if you look in um, act one, scene one, lines 336 and and following goneril says he always loved our sister most and with what poor judgment he hath now cast her off appears too grossly so they're talking about wow he loved her most as i noted they realize this even though even though he pretends that they should all love him equally mm-hmm. and regan responds "Tis the infirmity of his age yet he hath ever but slenderly known himself. And that is to say, they know that he has these feelings about himself. They know right. that he thinks he's a God and they know that he thinks he can speak things into existence. And so they respond in a way that reinforces that. And that pleases him when both Cordelia and Kent don't, it upsets him and they get cast out. And so for them, because, the, because he slenderly knows himself, he doesn't actually know the truth about himself. He's been lied to and he believes it. Mm-hmm. But because we know the truth about him, we know how to handle him. Mm-hmm. Whereas Cordelia and Kent somehow, th- th- I assume they know this about him, but for whatever reason, they think that they can prevent this maybe in private. Um, I'm reminded a little bit of Julius Caesar in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. He has Caesar present himself as a God um, mm-hmm. consistently in all of his public pronouncements. And sometimes in private too. However, when it's just him and his wife, when they're mm-hmm. talking, there's open discussion of his sickness. There, he's he's calling augurers and he's he's having all of these concerns and he's being very vulnerable with his wife. And mm-hmm. it's possible maybe Lear has been this way with uh, Cordelia because mm. she's his the one he has the most affection for, and with Kent because he's one of his closest advisors. And then they're they're trying to draw on this affection they've had with him in the past. But in these public pronouncements, since they've contradicted him and ruined his public image as a god, he mm-hmm. has to take on this wrathful, vengeful response. Mm. Well, Thunder just was outside my uh, <laughs> house as soon as you talk, were talking about wrath. This is very this is a good portent. It is. The gods support our, our cause. Yes, that's good. <laughs> Well, so then speaking maybe then of Lear's confusion or to the extent he does or does not possess self-knowledge, maybe we could talk about his uh, meantime speech around line 37 in the Folger edition, where he sort of lays out the purpose of breaking the kingdom into three parts. Yeah. So uh, I'm reading now. Lear says, meantime. We shall express our darker purpose 
Give me the map there. Know that we have divided in three our kingdom, and tis our fast intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths, while we unburdened crawl toward death. Our son of Cornwall, and you, our no less loving son of Albany, we have this hour a constant will to publish our daughter's several dowers, that future strife may be prevented now. The two great princes, France and Burgundy, great rivals in our youngest daughter's love, long in our court, have made their amorous sojourn, and here are to be answered. Tell me, my daughters, since now we will divest us both of rule, interest of territory, cares of state, which of you shall say, which of you, which of you shall we say doth love us most? that we our largest bounty may extend, where nature doth with merit challenge. Goneril, our eldest born, speak first. So, um, Bolingbroke, what do you make of this speech? This seems like an important one. Yeah, uh, this speech and this moment in the play is the thing that makes people... uh, I don't like these classifications. I'm not a big fan of traditional Shakespeare scholarship, but it's the thing that makes people call this a quote problem play. I don't like the classification problem play. I don't find it helpful. I don't really see what you get from it. I think the problem plays as they call them are the most interesting plays that you can get the most from. But Mm -hmm. when people read this speech, they say Lear is an insane person, this speech and, and the things that follow from it, because first, he's dividing the kingdom up in three and not keeping it unified. So he's destroying his kingdom in a certain sense, unless you can, you could assume, Oh, the sisters, they're all going to get along. They'll keep their portions and there'll be a united Britain. But we just know historically, this isn't the case. And so he's destroying his kingdom so that he can go into retirement, you know, in a certain way. Uh, we, we talk, we talk today about boomers who they, they spend all of their money, uh, so their kids don't get anything and they, you know, they spend it all on vacations and, and uh, RVs to, to drive around the country. And then their kids get nothing in the end. In a way, it's the same thing that he's destroying the, the real gift that um, if Goneril is his eldest, it should all go to Goneril and she should be, she and her husband should rule over all of Britain, but instead he's going to divide it. Uh, so that's the first point. Uh, and Harry Jaffa, he has a, he has a, classic article that's on this it's well worth the read it's in um, Shakespeare's politics with alan bloom and in that article he tries to wrestle with the question of what it is that lear's attempting here but um yes it's very important it's also very strange uh he talks about nature warring with merit um is is nature so and and i think to that point really that that may be the 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 description of what he's up to because if we're talking about merit if you just go off of our beginning discussion cordelia is the one he thinks merits the rule of britain but Mm -hmm. nature or at least like the conventional understanding of the natural order of things is that the eldest should rule now really it's the eldest man and so maybe he's thinking okay well i can do what i want since i didn't have a male heir so uh, we're going to have nature war with convention and we're going to let my daughter who deserves to rule have the chance to rule if she can show her love for me properly in this 
way. Now it is, it does seem like it was a formality that somehow Cordelia just whiffed. I mean, because he already had it divided. There wasn't some secret like, and it, and that's one of the things that I found curious too. If you look at the very beginning of the play, mm-hmm. the very first lines between Kent and Gloucester are talking about, I thought that Lear um, loved Albany more than he loved Cornwall. And Gloucester says, well, yeah, I thought so too. But if you look at all three of the divisions, they're equal. These are all equal divisions. And so th- this is, it's, it's a very, it's a very peculiar thing that he's doing here that he has predetermined that he's going to divide his kingdom. He's predetermined what portion is going to go to who, and all of this on the formality of his daughters expressing their love rhetorically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's a curious thing and the speech this very formal speech about it uh it it almost feels like a farce and i think that's why people say well he must be insane in his old age or something and that's why he's doing this which i don't agree with that interpretation but right yeah i think well to say or maybe just to add like a little bit to you'd mentioned jaffa's article i mean it seems like jaffa wants to insist well, I think maybe, well, contrary to other people who think that Lear's insane, maybe Jaffa wants to insist that Lear is too prudent in a way. But like, I think he, something like that the division of the kingdom will put Cordelia in the center of the country and it will put Cornwall and Albany, like to the, I forgot which one's the north and which one's the south, but that they'll be sort of apart from each other. And that there'll be kind of like balance of power between the three in a way that maybe there's less of a way to balance things when there's right. just two. And that, so too, the idea, it, it seems like Burgundy has first choice in gaining Cordelia's hand, um, the way that he's sort of like allowed to speak first. And that even France defers when he sort of starts to make the move when they're aware that the dower is no, no longer a possibility and says like, well, Burgundy, like, would you like her? And then Burgundy doubles down is like, yeah, as long as there's a dowry. And then King Lear's like, no, I stand firm on this. Kind of like a Caesarish moment, like I'm firm on this yes. um like you were saying and then uh oh but at any rate but if burgundy is a much weaker power there's something like that balances things between england burgundy in france whereas like things might get out of balance if you know somehow france and england are really working together on something or you know either england ends up dominating france or france ends up dominating england um so I, I don't know how far to follow Jaffa on that kind of thing, but it is like a really interesting article because I think he also wants to say something like that um, Lear's catching Goneril and Regan off guard in a way that they would have never made such a pronouncement if they had been prepared. Like I think the Ian McKellen version of the play captures this. Now, not to say that that necessarily means it's correct, but I think like Goneril and Regan both look like kind of really surprised in that um, rendition of the play. I, I can You can sort of feel that a little bit too because I don't think that if they were prepared, I don't think that Regan would have made a show of saying, I too agree with the things my sister said. Like, it feels right. like she's like um, treading water so she can figure out something unique to say. Like, right. if they'd known, they would have planned something, I think. Right. Yeah, sort of like, okay, I'm basically making the same speech as my sister. Uh, uh, oh, but I figured out actually how to make it better. I hate all the things that don't come yeah. from you. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, so maybe to add a little bit too about how it seems to me Lear's not insane here, but it does seem to me he must be confused, um, at least in some way, if this is if he's making a mistake. And so 
when he says why he's breaking up the kingdom, the first motive that he mentions is that he would like to cast off the burdens of ruling. Um, they become more troublesome with old age. He wants to crawl towards death. Um, so it's a kind of self-serving motive. Ruling is difficult and he doesn't want to do it anymore. Um, so that's the first sort of opinion that he has. He would like to benefit himself by not ruling. The second opinion is more noble or public spirited. Um, he wants to avoid strife in the future. Um, ruling doesn't just entail burdens. Um, it's accompanied by many goods and honors in its own right. And so he sacrifices the good side of ruling while also gaining something by not having to you know, carry the burdens. But he does this so that he can maybe perpetuate the kingdom into the future. Like Jaff is really uh, relentlessly concerned with saying that Lear wants to perpetuate the kingdom into the future, that he's a Lincolnian man in that respect. But so Lear is selfish, wants to cast off ruling, but he's also noble and wants to sort of sort things out before he dies. And so that seems more to his credit in a way. But I think these motives are in conflict um, with each other. Um, and I think one way that you could spell out the conflict is to say something like this, like um, Lear trusts his daughters, or at least Cordelia, <laughs> Um, that they'll take care of him when he's old and that his being taken care of, well, that has to add to the burden of their rule. But he must think that I deserve this. I've been a good king. I've been a good father. I'm like a god. As I step down, of course, people should care for me. Um, but then he assumes that his daughters and their husbands are just, that they will furnish the virtuous Lear with what it is that he deserves, which is care here. But on the other hand, he also divides the kingdom before he dies to avoid future strife. You know, that he kind of maybe imagines there could be competition. And so if he could appease everybody now, he can get rid of the competition at the outset and even arrange the balance of power, so to speak, so that even if there is competition, it will hopefully be safer or less like overwhelmingly victorious if there is competition, that the competition will be too troublesome. So he's like, okay, my daughters will take care of me, but my daughters will also fight if I don't set things up in the right way. So it seems like that's a kind of confusion. And to just add maybe one more piece of evidence for Lear being moved by these two confused opinions at the same time, um, uh, you see this maybe in his decision to retain the title of king and 100 knights. And it seems to me like that kind of keeps Lear in a sort of halfway house because to keep knights, like, why do you do that? You know, it's a kind of self-protective a maneuver that presupposes that Lear might need protection from his offspring or from other threats or that they won't be able to protect him. Um, so, uh, and, and in that way, maybe there's kind of like a split sovereignty too. Like if there's a war, you know, do the knights get called upon? Where do the knights go? Do they go away from Lear? Do they stay with Lear? Um, and so it seems like you would need knights to enforce your authority, but Lear's also handed over his authority. So like, what are the knights for again? Um, so I wonder if his retention of the knights is an expression of his feeling that there's a pull between two conflicting opinions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I, I just want to, this, this may be a plug for the Jaffaite reading a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. The thing that I read in these various things, the, the one element that I think is worth considering is maybe he is self-aware of the effect old age is beginning to have on him. Mm -hmm. And so when he says he's trying to avoid conflict, well, maybe he's not really being exactly self-interested 
in in the avoiding conflict and and moving away from rule now but rather is saying if i don't do it now i won't be able to do it later Mm -hmm. i'm going to be incapable of dealing with what's going to come and the kingdom's going to fall apart because i'll be feeble and on my deathbed so instead i'm going to deal with it now when i am alert and i'm able to discuss it and i can be in charge and and exercise my authority Mm -hmm. Uh, the one other point about this is if he's going to be a king in the land and as jaffa implies and as you point out if there's going to be conflict or potential conflict at least between two of the sisters Mm-hmm. Then him having a hundred knights, it could just be to protect him from whatever is going to happen in the conflict that he is foreseeing between these various sections of the kingdom that he's handing out. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what if he's what if he's at Goneril's house and Regan decides to attack and Goneril, you know, they we already know how they feel about the king. And mm-hmm. so now he has a hundred knights to protect him in that situation mm-hmm. or or something like this. And so it, I can I can see the prudent reading that that Lear sees who he is and he sees what's coming and is deciding to try and foresee all of the problems that might occur before they occur and mm-hmm. before it's too late. Because if he becomes a dotard or um, so ill that he can't leave his bed, then what good is him holding off? And, you know, now I've ruled all this time, but... I have three daughters and no son, so it's not clear what's supposed to happen when I die, and it's just going to be a bloodbath. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Okay. So, yeah, is there, is there more to say about this speech, or should we talk about Cordelia? I think we go to Cordelia. Um, what, yeah. do you, what do you make of her? Is, did she do something that was supremely admirable by saying the truth, even though it would come effectively at a great sacrifice of all sorts of things or is she selfish or of mixed merit um like what do you make of her in this in this scene when she kind of sees what you're supposed to do publicly which is say that you love your dad an unbelievable amount and then the future of the country is settled and things will will be fine like what do you what do you make of her um it seems to me that she is so she's obviously admirable and she's written in a way that we're supposed to be in awe of her integrity. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Kent jumps to her aid, it's its an emotional scene. And when you're reading it and you see the way that Kent, he's sacrificing himself for her and she has sacrificed herself for the truth. There's this beauty to it. But as a matter of politics, she's made a foolish choice. Now, as I pointed out earlier, she may know her dad in a way that the others don't. And this is also pointed out in, in Jaffa's article that uh, he thinks that Cordelia was surprised by Lear's response and that Lear was expecting something like this from Cordelia, but that it took him aback how, um, how starkly she made the answer and it upset him. And he, mm-hmm. he lost his, he, he didn't keep his cool because of it, but that mm-hmm. they knew each other. And this was the kind of response Lear should have expected from her. And this was the ex- response that a virtuous king should want to receive. Mm. But it, it, even it, with all of those ideal circumstances, you have to understand the nature of politics and the importance of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jaffa, he loved Abraham Lincoln so much. And Lincoln was famous for having this ability to speak to his audience. Uh, 
he was he was mocked for it you know that he would sort of tell jokes that were off color in the right way in the right regions or he would uh Mm -hmm. use words in a different way in different regions because he was trying to speak to his audience well the audience right now is a king Lear who wants to give you a third of the kingdom and all you have to do is say that you love your father and if Mm -hmm. she had i think that even if she had said her later speech before she said nothing it's possible that she could have she could have won him over if she'd been a little bit more careful and just said father i love you according to your worth i love you because you brought me into this world and i love you as much as you deserve and will give you all of the love and duty that a daughter ought to give if she had just said that and responded with that then he probably would have been like that's good the good work but instead he said what will you say to get a more opulent portion than your sisters she went nothing (laughs) and he goes what and it's understandable that he reacts this way because she makes him look like a fool but really what she was hoping is that he would say well done cordelia you have passed the virtue test you've passed Mm -hmm. my morality play you saw through me and so you received the most opulent portion because you've told the truth Mm. but the fact is telling the truth is no good if you can't tell it in a way that's going to be heard. Mm-hmm. He didn't even hear the truth because she did say that she loved him more than her sisters. That's right. the truth of the matter. And if he knows his daughters and he does, then he knows that she loves him more than his other daughters love him. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter because he couldn't hear her. She didn't speak in a language that he could listen to. She didn't speak to the moment. She lost all prudence and all rhetoric. And perhaps she had something like a pure moral virtue of this integrity, this honesty but she lacked any kind of political virtue. If you don't have prudence, you cannot do politics. And so uh, you're going to expect this person to be the queen over a portion of Britain now? I mean, that's not what he's thinking, but perhaps he should have been thinking that like, wow, she doesn't even know how to, how to make a speech in a public setting when she's supposed to. And I'm supposed <laughs> to expect her to like be in charge of my kingdom. No way, man. And so, <laughs> She, she, there's something admirable about it unquestionably. And that's how it's written. But I think that if you just give it, a, give it another moment's thought, Cordelia is not 100% uh, perfect in the regard that she sometimes is seen or presented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems, that seems right. Um, and, and maybe to say something else about then something of what you said, made me think this is that, something else that sort of shows that Lear's not totally insane is that he seems to love the two people who love him the most, like Cordelia and Kent. And so now, of course, maybe he should have thought more about who they were or something like that before doing what he does. But there is something about that, that he is closest to the people who seem to be best, um, which speaks well of him. Um, And then a sort of dark, prudent thought that emerges out of like what Cordelia did is, do you, would you like to be married to a Duke of Burgundy or would you like to be married to the King of France? Yeah. I would like, you know, like, no, I don't, I don't really think that Cordelia was reasoning like that. Um, there's just something in Jaffa's article that made me suddenly think like, whoa, like she could have like, uh, gotten away. Like that's, that's a much higher position, um, to have, but even if you put on the ring of power. Right. Right. <laughs> no, but again, I, I think that that's not like the right reading, but it's like an interesting consideration just to, to think through, even if thinking it through doesn't lead one to be convinced by it. 
Um, there's there's one other um, thing that I I think it's I I just think that if we don't see Cordelia as as like a political person and we just see her as like this Shakespeare people sometimes present characters in Shakespeare or in Plato for that matter as you know they present them as pure representations of a concept or a virtue and mm. they don't ever allow them the gravity or the the uh i don't know the the reality of what it is to be a person and that's always present and so mm-hmm. if we want to just like make cordelia just like oh she's this stunning view of what integrity and and honesty in the face of tyranny really should be well okay she seems to figure it out and she apologizes at the end of the play like <laughs> I mean, like I, I i just think that i think that um we can't look at it with the we can't make people one-dimensional and making her one-dimensional in this way i think she is one-dimensional but i don't think that that's laudable in this case mm-hmm. yeah 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 there's something about what she said would have made a lot more sense to say in private, you know, it was like a private speech. That's a great speech. And as you said, even the timing could have improved it quite a bit if he, she would have said that first, but sometimes like, yeah, the requirements of public speech are just like a little bit different, assuming like your intent is to cause, you know, good things to happen for yourself and for other people. Then this is just something that's just not, not good. Um, uh, and it was interesting what you said to say that, uh, you know, Lear could have been like, whoa, Cordelia, you should not be a ruler if you're going to speak like this in public. I'm sorry, but like, you can't always say what you mean when you're talking to the king of France, you know, if he's not your husband. Um, and even if he is, but at any rate. Um, yeah. Now, my opinion, and we're not going to um, go too much into this today because we're doing, you know, a, a little bit at a time. We're doing one act at a time, but I think that Cordelia learns her lesson. Mm-hmm. Maybe not fully, but by the end of the play, she demonstrates that she does have prudence and is able, like she's doing, she's making some political moves at the end of the play that are really big and really impressive. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that she does figure it out. And that's one of the themes that we're going to see in this play is that there's a lot of people who are exiled, Cordelia and Kent and um, Ed, Edgar, all of them mm-hmm. end up uh, sort of cast off and having to fend for themselves for a little while. Mm-hmm. But um, all of them and, oh, and Lear as well. And all of them have a chance to learn a lesson from this exile and all of them get something from it. They all, mm-hmm. they all, it's an educative process and seeing the way that they return, the character that they display when they return, I think is very instructive. And so Cordelia, we show her as this imprudent, but virtuous woman. That's great. She returns as something different. And I think mm-hmm. that that's, it's sort of an important thing to keep in your mind as you're hearing this, this understanding of it. Right. Yeah. Okay, good. So then let's move on to Edmund, um, the bastard. And uh, maybe we can read out loud his speech from Act 1, Scene 2, the speech that opens it. Yeah, I'll, I'll read that if that's okay. Yes. Um, Act 1, Scene 2, and it's beginning at line 1 and following. Thou, nature, art my goddess. 
To thy law my services are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosities of nations to deprive me for that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshines lag of a brother? Why bastard? Wherefore base when my dimensions are as well compact, my mind as generous and my shape as true as honest maidens issue? Why brand they us with base, with baseness, bastardy, base, base? Who is the lusty stealth of nature? Who in the lusty stealth of nature take more composition and fierce quality than doth within a dull, stale, tired bed go to the creating a whole tribe of fops go between asleep and wake? Well then, legitimate Edgar, I must have your land. Our father's love is to the bastard Edmund as to the legitimate. Fine word, legitimate. Well, my legitimate, if this letter, speed, and my invention thrive, Edmund the base shall top the legitimate. I grow, I prosper. Now, God, stand up for bastards. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, what do you make of this speech? I just think it's, I think it's so fun, first of all. I just think it's, it's such like a, Especially it's a stark, you, we're introduced to Edmund in scene one, but mm-hmm. he's just sort of like, it, we're told, okay, this is my, Gloucester's like, this is my bastard. It was fun bringing him into the world, but he kind of came into the world when I wasn't expecting him and I'm kind of mad at him about it, but I love him anyway. I love him as much as my, as my legitimate uh, son. He almost blames his son, doesn't he? He came saucily into the world. Yeah. Yeah. How dare you? You came in here faster than you were supposed to, you sneaky little devil. Um <laughs> But it is, I, I mean, that's one thing is his father is very good natured, I think, in that scene. He's yeah calling him a bastard and he's being a little bit unkind in this way. But uh, he's saying, I love him as much as my normal son, which actually is not a thing you're supposed to say publicly. Like, that's not even the right thing to say. He's saying it because Gloucester legitimately has this virtue where he loves his sons. Mm-hmm. Um, it may not be true that he loves them equally, but... He does seem to love him. And so Edmund says, all right, he loves me as much as he loves my brother. I'm going to take advantage of this. But that that like this, there's this playful scene and he's brought in. It's like, oh, he's the bastard. And then like the first real thing out of his mouth are, is this very like complicated and bitter speech about nature, custom, so nature and convention, mm-hmm. um, f- fusus and nomos, if you want to be if you want to be uh, more more Greek. And mm-hmm. then talking about how, by nature, he is better than his brother, but uh, as good or better than his brother, and he's going to prove it by taking his brother's, his brother's land. I just, I think it's very fun and it's very lively. And then, of course, the question of nature versus convention in it, I think is irresistible. Right. Right. And I, you should tell me if I'm uh, making too much of this line, but he, when he talks about the curiosity of nations, does it seem possible that to some extent what he's thinking about when he says that is that insofar as there, he, you know, nations plural, that he's kind of railing against customer convention on the basis that like, look, there's a variety of nations and therefore a variety of customs. And that's what should make each of these customs seem doubtful or which would lead us lead thoughtful men to look for that which underlies custom or which is more trustworthy or stable, like something like nature. Hmm. Cause I, I was almost like wondering, I mean, maybe in, maybe I'm just like pushing on it too much, like from reading the Odyssey recently, just thinking about Odysseus, you know, trying to understand the minds of many men. 
And that's part of like what makes the idea of nature emerge to some extent, as like Strauss says in Natural Right in History to say that like, well, maybe if you, you know, looked at the customs of many people, you might not think that my way is best, our way, but you start to think like, well, you wouldn't necessarily think you could draw the conclusion, oh, well, I can do whatever I want. Um, but at any rate, it would. So that that's almost like what the thoughtless man, not not completely thoughtless or something like that. You would just say like, well, all the customs are completely arbitrary. It's almost like, you know, if you give like a, a high school student, like a little bit of philosophy, they just use it as like an acid to like just destroy all the rules or justify to themselves. I can do anything like, well, you can't give me an account of why I should do that. And it is sometimes difficult to defend customs. It's a lot easier to say like why you shouldn't do certain things, but that I don't know. So uh, that's a long way of saying that I was wondering if Edmund was somehow alluding to this kind of like more classical notion of like how the idea of nature emerges. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's right. And he even um, nations is kind of a curious word to use too. Uh Um, And if you want to be, if you want to go even a little bit more, uh, goofy about it, then you could look at the, the Latin and nation is rooted in fatherland. And so there's mm. a play on words there too. And mm-hmm. so because of the curiosity of nations, so of the various fathers of the various fatherlands and the way that they, in the plague of their various customs, interpret bastards or perhaps maybe a, a nicer word, because obviously he's very upset with bastard and its other forms when they're referred to when, when he's referred to by them uh he he's he's seeing i think as you say that that there is a variety of customs does start to imply for some at least on a basic level as you say a high school kid with a little bit of nietzsche uh it implies for him that maybe custom itself is wickedness and custom itself is unnatural. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like by nature, Edmund understands himself as beautiful and intelligent. And so he thinks he deserves his fatherland, um, his father's land to, I mean, I guess maybe (laughs) confirm the play on words or something like that. Um, So it's like precisely because he holds himself to be worthy of the land and that he's been unjustly deprived of it, he thinks he can now use immoral means in order to get those things. So then I think this is would be what follows up on your point is to say that um, maybe from Edmund's view, convention is something that institutionalizes injustice and keeps the naturally best down. Like that's what it's designed to do, almost like thinking of like Glaucon's account of like the origins of justice or something like that, that there are a bunch of like yeah. really powerful men who then get put down when the many come together to say, ah, uh, together we're stronger. And so like, who is law helping? It's helping those who are not naturally best. It deprives them of the opportunity to take things that they're strong enough to have in Edmund's view. Um, uh, real quick, if we could just roll yeah. back. Yeah. This is the problem that Lear is trying to solve mm. uh, in some sense, right? By, by trying to pull Cordelia in and give her a more substantial dowry, give her a large chunk of the nation instead of just a a dukedom or whatever. Right. He is trying to fix this. And he's saying that her merit overwhelms the, the custom that requires that the natural eldest child is the one who receives it. But even so, because of the custom, because of what he has put in place and 
fundamentally what he is requesting of them is I have made this custom. I have this convention that I want you to follow. And it is to say that you love me, but Mm -hmm. she subverts his convention and he's not able to do the thing that he wishes to do in overcoming convention by letting nature or merit uh, rule, rule over. And so um, in a way he and Edmund are wrestling with the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And in, in both cases, you have like generational struggle in addition as like another parallel. But it is kind of funny. Yeah, the way that you bring out that passage is like when Lear says, when he talks about the contest between nature and merit, it's almost like when he uses the word nature, he actually means convention. That that, yeah. who's, that who's born first is conventionally supposed to get these things. And by merit, it's like who's naturally best. I, I mean, I think you basically said that already, but like it, it is a kind of like funny thing that like nature you can't really like look in this play at the word nature and assume that it means the same thing every time. Like you have to like really carefully look at what the character says then in that part of the passage, but then also what they say later on, because it seems like Shakespeare's presenting in a lot of ways, the way that a lot of human beings have, we, you know, we use nature in a very confused way, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. Like, especially you hear people today just like, well, that's human nature. And you're like, whoa, like, I, I don't know what you mean, man. I'm sorry. Um, please not. say more. <laughs> um, right, like, I, is it this low thing that's just our impulses or is it a standard by which you can judge things? Um, yeah, well, and or it both. seems like for Edmund, the answer is both in this speech, mm-hmm. right? It's a It's a low thing because nature is the thing that like makes you like you're going to quickly have sex in a way that's sort of hasty and and not really thinking it through um but that because of the result of it that he becomes better in some sort of an objective way it's both it's it's both for him it seems like it's this low thing it's the instinct but it's also this natural merit and so it's instinct and it's hierarchy mm-hmm. uh, in, in a way you don't want to be too intense on this but it seems like edmund is almost a, a nietzschean view of nature that um nature is life and that nature is hierarchy and nature is power and so that means that sometimes doing low and bad things is a good thing because it brings about um life and hierarchy and power uh into its into its full understanding right right like uh this like Nietzschean sea captain in Jack London's The Sea Wolf, Wolf Larson says that uh, to kill a human being and to smoke a cigar are to him like the same thing or something like that. Like mm-hmm. if you're powerful enough to do it and you can get away with it, it's not really a moral action. Like you shouldn't view things from a moral frame of reference or something like that. Um, so which makes me wonder, I mean, now I don't think that even in this first speech, Edmund fully takes himself out of a moral frame of reference, at least in some sense, insofar as he wants to say he deserves these things because mm-hmm. he's good. Mm-hmm. But he's a little bit of an immoralist insofar as he wants to say, well, I can do anything that I'm able to do to get away with or succeed at to get these things back. Like I can do anything that I want. Um, that conventions are the only thing that stand between me and what I deserve. So he's still moral at the same time that he's like, I can help myself to these immoral things to achieve my ends. Um, And so Edmund, you know, then he talks to his father and tricks his father into thinking that the legitimate brother, Edgar, 
um, wants to kill Gloucester. And I think as you pointed out, maybe in our conversation before this, is that maybe Gloucester's kind of flustered from what he's just witnessed with King Lear. And so maybe he's predisposed in, in a passionate frame, you know, to suddenly, you know, believe that, you know, something horrible, like I just watched my King just like totally screw everything up. And now my son wants to kill me. And then, you know, Gloucester wants to move towards like astrology and be like, yeah, you know, there's been a lot of eclipses lately. Um, and I guess after that, when, when Gloucester leaves the room, Edmund's sort of disgusted by this astrological interpretation of events. And he suddenly maybe, I, I don't know, the speech seems even darker or more serious than the other one, but it seems like it, it doesn't fully fit together with the other speech. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Edmund interprets Gloucester as saying these divine signs are like some sort of compelling nature that it's like the stars were this way. And so I was forced to do this or forced to do that. And so Edmund offers a kind of robust defense, or maybe not fully robust, whatever, but like a, a powerful defense of moral freedom to say like men blame the stars, but that's their weakness. They should like say, I'm strong enough to do these kinds of things. I'm free to choose. And so then I think what we talked about before is that something that distinguishes these two speeches that I could see is that, in the first speech, he's willing to say nature is a kind of impulse. And so therefore my father had sex when he wanted to, and he probably couldn't have helped himself. And it's only convention maybe that would blame him. That's adding a little bit to what he said, but I think it's in line with the spirit of what he says. Um, but then in this second speech, after Gloucester leaves, he says that adultery is evil. I mean, he literally uses the word evil. So it's like he wants to say that Gloucester's adultery can be blamed and not blamed at the same time. And so it seems like here or the Edmund, I don't know, maybe moves between being a kind of moralist in a way, like you're free to choose to do the right thing. And also like, why am I a bastard? I hate this. You know, like you did this to me, but then on the other hand, like I can do anything I want um, in light of like this injustice or something like that. So it's like a weird way in which he moves between the frame of reference of like a moralist and an immoralist, so to speak. And maybe there's, there's probably a better way to put it. Well, one other little hiccup in it as well is he calls those acts evil, but then right after that, he uh, says that he was, um, his father compounded with his mother under the dragon's tail. Um, and so my nativity was under Ursa Major so that it follows, I am rough and lecherous. And then he as much as says, ha, tricks on you, jokes on you. I would have been rough and lecherous no matter what. Um, <laughs> so there's also this sense that like, so um, I should have been that I am had the maidenliest star in the firmament twinkled on my bastardizing. A mm. great, a great word, bastardizing, to describe um, beginning of a <laughs> bastard. But um, th- that it's it's a really complicated, and a lot of it just feels like this like bitter screw you dad energy that he has. That like what whatever he can summon against his upbringing and his situation, he will. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, something that I noticed just now is he actually talks about heavenly bodies in both speeches. Um, mm-hmm. In line five of the first speech, uh, for that I am some 12 or 14 moonshines lag of a brother. So he's talking about how the measuring of the moon and the movement of the moon, uh, this convention of when he was born is why he is a bastard now i will say also it's because his mother is not the one that his father's married to as well so i don't know that he would have been you know 12 or 14 moonshines or i mean or is he saying that he was born of his he's the firstborn of his 
father's wife, but it's before they were married. Um, it's that was not my impression, but it's not it's not totally clear. But if that's what it is, then then yeah, he's just upset about the timing, and it's nothing but this convention of oh well, it's about this time. If they had been married twelve months earlier, then I wouldn't have been a bastard. Um, but then uh, that his father, it's there's nothing about the heavenly bodies that he buys right? Neither that we can use them to measure days, like days and months are bogus to him in a certain way. And then right. of course, uh, the heavenly bodies having some sort of effect on the way that we behave is bogus. And so the heavenly bodies, and as much as to say the heavens have no say in anything that we do, or how we behave or the meaning of our lives. Right. Right. So then, uh, I don't know what even to say about this kind of thing. But just like when he says like, you know, oh, how does he put it? Like gods defend bastards. Um, yeah. Oh, stand I'm up for bastards. Up for bastards. <laughs> I, I don't know. Is what to make of that? If like, that's just sort of like a, I don't know that just speaking colloquially, colloquially, ugh, I can't talk. Um, but like, you just, just, it's like a, a turn of phrase or is it, does he really hope that there's some kind of strange divine support or is he like divinizing nature in a strange way at the same time that when he looks at the heavenly bodies, he wants to disenchant them, but then he looks at nature somehow. I don't know. It's, it, it is, it's confusing. And to me. The, the one other funny thing he says, um, God is, he calls nature a God at the beginning of it, but right. the only, um, thing that is formalized uh that is to say that is capitalized um in the speech on in an unusual way is nature nature mm-hmm. is capitalized and so he is speaking to nature as if it is a being or a god or some someone with a an agency but what is that agency is the agency purely just the movement through human will um, and in particular through human impulse because for him seems that nature really is only we only see nature as it uh as it comes out in the way that humans act with each other and so in his bastardizing for example that was nature but then Mm -hmm. it's convention the getting of edmund because it's in the legitimate marriage bed and it's this uh fusty creation of an army of fops because all of them there's no um energy there's no blood behind the the sexual act it's just this like habit right it's this marital habit that we're going to have sex with each other every uh you know fortnight or whatever it might be and Mm -hmm. occasionally a child will come forth from it um is nature merely just this so this was the point that i was making before um apollo is is evoked as one of the only gods jupiter's named as well but apollo is one of the only gods named in these opening scenes uh for nietzsche the opposite of apollo is dionysius and in a way if you're going to and dionysius um, or bacchus is the god of nature uh Mm -hmm. in in some interpretations and so it could be that he's worshiping a kind of chaos uh a much and that and that's why like it does have this sort of like nietzschean feeling to it the his interpretation of nature and he seems like he might be in worshiping like this it'd be hard to like peg down exactly what nietzsche's moral compunctions on the question of nature and 
instinct and these various things we're discussing because there's this element of it's whatever the madness that comes from the Dionysian, the Dionysian uh, perspective, whatever, whatever that yields. And so he doesn't talk about Dionysius. He doesn't talk about Bacchus, but Bacchus is the God of nature uh, or, or Dionysius is. And so that could be perhaps what he's getting at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, good. So are there any closing remarks that you have about um, act one or anything else that you think was like left out? I mean, obviously there's, there is more to say about it, but is there anything of essence to our sort of like themes um, that you think should be noted? Um, no, I think, well, there's maybe a little bit more of, I, I just want to say about Lear thinking he's a god. Mm-hmm. He starts to see more and more why that's not the case. The more that he interacts with his daughters and we see his interaction with Goneril here. And as he starts to move away from her, um, all the things leading up to it, his night saying, Hey, I think we're on the outs. I think that we're in danger here. And as you say him, he tries to summon his fool and uh, it doesn't work because he's not a God more and more he comes to the realization that he's not a God and um, it's, it's really sad to watch as he starts to lose his mind um, because he, he'll say, he'll be going, he'll say, no, 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 don't go mad. Don't go mad. Like he like feels himself doing it and he's trying to stop himself because somehow the experience of feeling himself fall from the pedestal that he had been placed on causes him to lose his grip on reality because he no longer knows what reality is. And that's something else that's demonstrated in this scene is when Goneril rejects him and is trying to get him to remove his knights and do all these different things, which it becomes more intense and, and it ramps up in the, in the coming scenes. But as she does that, it's, it shocks him because he was convinced. They said that they loved him. Okay, they're going to take care of me. And now they're not going to. And so he's in this vulnerable state. Not only are they not going to take care of him, but they're taking away his only means of protecting himself with his knights. And mm-hmm. he no longer, he doesn't have the sovereignty of a king who can uh, speak and he's commanded as he, as he notices. And so mm-hmm. he's no longer feels godlike and he doesn't even have the means of protecting himself physically. And we see more and more how that's the case to the point that he submits to it uh, willingly, I'd say later in the play. Right. Okay, good. That sounds like a good way uh, to end. This has been a lovely conversation and I look forward to our next one. Yeah. All right. Very good.